0: Today, Jason Vojevich, author of "Marketed in Chief, guests the Futurized podcast. In this conversation, we talk about the role of marketing in presidential politics, more specifically how Vojevich has grouped presidents by the major challenges they faced in office. We discuss James Polk, Herbert Hoover, and Barack Obama, and touch on the Biden presidency. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or you're looking for a great way to tell your friends about this show, which we always appreciate, um, take a look at the episode categories at futurizeorg episodes. These are collections of your favorite episodes organized by topic, such as entrepreneurship, trends, emerging tech, or the future work. They help new listeners get a taste of everything we do here. The host of this podcast, Trond und Heim, is the author of a bunch of books, Future uh, Tech, Health Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, disruption games and leadership from below. And for an overview, you can go to trondondheim.com slash books. At this stage, Futurized is lucky enough to have several sponsors to check them out, go to futurized.org slash sponsors. Before anything else, make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org.
1: Jason, how are you today?
2: I'm well. How are you? This is this is a wonderful gray morning in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the United States for me. So uh, we're getting a little taste of winter, even though it's only October seventh.
1: I had a wonderful morning myself, uh, running, uh, you know, doing my marathon training, and it was uh, wonderfully crisp this morning for sure. So
2: no, that's nice. You're really training for a marathon. I've I I, I couldn't imagine. I. Are you in like 5, 10 Ks up front? Or are you trying to do the whole thing? I, I don't want to get into your training approach, but it's fascinating to me people who choose to go after that and accomplish that.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a long story why I did it. It's actually the last two days, so it's like in massive tapering mode. I shouldn't really be running much, so this was just a very, very easy run with one uh, kind of like a mile tempo run at like marathon pace. It was just a quiet little little session uh, because you can't sit still the week before you your legs forget that you're gonna go out and do a big thing on Monday so
2: well I wish you luck I think it's uh, uh just the the accomplishment that comes from crossing that finish line almost no matter when you finish but you know, competitive people innovators we like to we like to see how we can do a little bit better than before and it's I think it's, I think it's fascinating. So
1: good luck. Well, yeah, well, thank you. Well, we, we're here to talk about the, some of the wonderful work you, you're doing, though. And, you know, you, you're a bit of a communicator and, and uh, certainly an extreme um, communicator, I would say, yourself, uh, which goes to the point of, of your book, Marketing in Chief, you have kind of positioned Politicians and presidents in in this marketing lens that I think is very interesting, and and I wanted to just chat briefly about your background. So you you have a, a master in in communications from from Twin Cities M- Minnesota, and you have pretty much had this kind of marketing background, and then you moved into uh, you know authorship that sort of spans a very wide uh, terrain. Because when you start writing about presidents, you're essentially into history of the United States, which obviously, you know, impacts the history of, of the rest of us. And uh, so that's a really ambitious uh, canvas that you, you painted there. Is there anything in your communication background that told you, I'm going to go ahead and write a book about American presidents? You know, it's
2: funny when you graduate from Uh, I graduated from both the University of Wisconsin and the University of Minnesota in the United States, both with communication degrees of one form or another. And most of the time, those schools are embedded within the journalism school. They're not embedded within the business school. So you're exposed to politics and history and more of a liberal arts background than a traditional business background. I certainly had that as well, but it's something that even in the 90s, I remember being in communications classes where we used political examples. We One of the things I remember distinctly is analyzing Al Gore's speeches in the vice presidential acceptance for the Democratic nomination for president uh, when Bill Clinton was elected. You know, we listened to those speeches. So it's pretty natural for people who come from a communications background to think about, to just have that in the back of their mind all the time. Uh, frankly, writing a book is not that dissimilar to training for a marathon or running a marathon. There's practice. There's a lot of things that go into that. As anyone who has written a book would know, uh, you know getting from here to there and crossing the finish line is not a foregone conclusion. But I would say that uh, for most people with a business background, they may not have had the opportunity to just take those history and politics kind of courses that were part of the electives for me. So I don't think it was that, I don't think it was that, it doesn't feel that odd to me as I went into product innovation and marketing. I've been in product development my entire career. uh, History was always, history wasn't something we talked about with most clients and at most organizations I worked with, but it was always a hobby of mine. And it's because I fell in love with it there and I've kept it going since. And as you know, product development is one of the hardest things, You know, product innovation, one of the most difficult things in uh, in the business world to do, in the political world to do, in the social world to do. And I found myself continually relying on lessons from Greek history, from Roman history, from Mongol history, Indian history, uh, American history where I didn't have to, uh, I didn't have to be the first one to tackle that type of problem. If I could figure out someone who tackled something like that before, maybe I could find some new way to approach a problem that I hadn't thought of before. And it's helped me. So again, all of those things kind of came together in the idea for the book.
1: Yeah. And I think you and I definitely share that love for history. I, uh, also, I thought I was going to end up really studying history, and you know, to some degree I have, but not as a as an academic career. Uh, so you've had a portfolio career. Uh, you, you, that's the, the way you characterized it to me. Um, so because launching products also is is a portfolio in the sense that you know you, you you're planning and helping people launch a product, and then you move on to some other product. Uh, but, but also, you, you do actually have an international background. You told me you had a Croatian origin. How, how does that help you, the, the fact that you're sort of very clearly uh, identifying also with somewhere outside of your sort of immediate uh, place where you, you grew up? Do you think that had, that had a, any impact on your sense of history?
2: I think so. Uh, when I think about my background, I have a Croatian background that's the name Vojovic, Uh, is a Croatian name, and it comes from the root in Croatian, Vojvideć, which means son of Duke. Uh, That's uh, for those of you who want to know and who are interested in kind of how those, the the etymology of the names. But what I feel they, you know, as immigrants, all of my immigrant kind of forefathers and foremothers were all entrepreneurs. They all uh, not only came to the United States, settled in the northern Minnesota region, the Iron Range region, as we call it here, where there's taconite and it flows out of the St. Lawrence Seaway across the world through the port of Duluth. They all settled up there and they all had to make it in a new environment. And uh, I come from a family of a bunch of entrepreneurs, painters, artists, uh, those sort of people who aren't content to just accept how, uh, what lot life gives them. And that's something I think unique about the immigrant experience. Uh, But more than that, and something that's a little hidden by my name, is my mother's side of the family came from Cuba. And they came after the revolution uh, when Batista was overthrown, Castro took over. About a year and a half later, they came to the United States. Same deal. Immigrants... Started their own businesses, you know, launched their own businesses both in Cuba and in the United States. So from a very early age, uh, when I would walk into my dad's office at home, he was working on client work. He was doing advertising mock-ups. You know, my mom was figuring out how to sell some, you know, how to sell something new to people at work. It was just the way I was raised. It seems completely natural to me. To have a number of different things going on, I can't imagine going to work from eight to five Monday through Friday, going home, and going fishing. It just it, that's a completely foreign experience to me. Sometimes I wish that I could do that, but I'm just not wired that way. I, I can't imagine a world like that.
1: Well, we're going to get into a book in a second, uh, and you know, imagining the world is indeed part of what. You seem to think that a president uh, has you know needs to do, but it's more than imagining it's also conceptualizing it because in your book Marketer in Chief, you sort of group presidents not only by the major challenges that they faced because that's sort of the initial, and that is more of a historical thing that you know other authors might might do, but then you you move on from there and you kind of pitch them as having the their own sort of core idea, or at least, Uh, either seeing themselves or then by posterity being seen. But in some cases, which we'll get to, it's not just what posterity sees, but you have sort of picked one lens on each president. And I wanted to get into that. But first, you group some presidents by these major challenges. Can you enlighten us a little bit on how you just run through American history really quickly for us?
2: I think there are a lot of ways to think about American history in any history. And I will preface this with... Any lens on history. All models are wrong, some models are useful. This particular lens on American history is just one, but I think it's a useful one. And I use Ev Rogers' Diffusion of Innovations as a guiding principle for the entire book, essentially casting the idea of the United States, that idea of the land of the free, the home of the brave, all of those sorts of things that create this American mythology as an innovation. Uh, We don't tend to think of it that way now because, well, we've been living with it for the past 200 years. The world has been living with it for the last 200 years or more. But in 1776, that absolutely was an innovation. It wasn't a given that the United States would succeed. So I wanted to use Roger's framework to help me understand the categories of challenges that different groups of presidents may face of the innovator, early adopter, early majority, late majority, and laggard, by using that sort of methodology, it helps me understand that you can't necessarily compare Thomas Jefferson with Jimmy Carter. And the reason you can't compare them isn't just that they're separated by history, that uh, you you can't judge a person in the past by today's standards. That's standard stuff the challenge that Jimmy Carter faced was distinctly different than the challenge that Thomas Jefferson faced. For instance, the challenge Tim Cook faces launching the iPhone 13 is very different than the challenge Steve Jobs faced launching the first one. And I think when we understand, it's just another way to understand those categories of history so that when we look at one particular lens for each president, and we start to kind of dig into one area it helps us frame how to look at that how did, how to evaluate that particular president in that moment in time with that innovation challenge and a lot of people frankly listening to this podcast i think will intuitively understand that framework a little bit better than the eras and trends and forces that most of us learn in history class I don't seem to fit with our experience uh, launching products, launching businesses, charting social movements—it th- just seems a little disconnected from that. I wanted to choose something that seemed a little bit more intuitive to most people.
1: Hmm. All right, so so let's jump into it, and we're we're only going to cover really three. Uh, in, the, in one of the first groups of yours, right? You have James Polk, and you call him the U.S. sort of territory M&A pers- president. The, the president who's like in charge of MA. Now, that's a kind of a cool take. And for some people, MA, so mergers and acquisition, is like a banking term and really far from being a politician. But explain to us how the 11th president of the United States, so we're talking 1845 to 49, uh, and I'm used to thinking of him kind of more in terms of, I guess, the Mexican War. But w- what is it that uh, happened that you find so significant uh, that turned him into a marketer in chief of? of territory
2: yeah i think the to think about polk is to think about marketing more broadly we tend to think about marketing in terms of the fourth p of marketing promotion messaging communication branding we don't tend to think about it in terms of product innovation pricing channels uh so this is a broader way to think about marketing and business uh James K. Polk, when we take a look, all you need to look at is the map of the United States before Polk took office and after to see the impact. James K. Polk started with the United States that was largely colonized on the Atlantic seaboard. It had, through the War of 1812, had expanded through the middle of the country. Present day Ohio is kind of the center of that, Tennessee, with the Louisiana Purchase, you know, you get that larger chunk of the United States that basically takes it to the Mississippi River. What Polk saw was kind of that, well, what's the next natural step? What is that manifest destiny? What are, from an m perspective, he felt that the Spaniards, uh, who controlled the western side of the United States uh, at that time, weren't really, they, they weren't in a position to exploit those resources, and to kind of build a nation there. Uh, Spain was clearly in decline at that point. Great Britain was busy with Napoleon and busy on the continent, busy with India and China. France was in ruins. Uh, So there was no real European power. There was a power vacuum there. Polk saw that as an opportunity. He saw the Spanish state is weak and its successor state in Mexico also as weak and saw the opportunity to expand the borders of the United States to the Pacific Ocean. And in like any kind of hostile takeover, he hostilely taked take over uh, the balance of the United States, uh, goading Mexico into war. And frankly, with the uh, Northwest territories, current present day, Oregon and Washington goaded, bluffed the British into kind of giving up and splitting up that territory. So when you take a look at what Polk did, he was only in office four years. He had one term and he died not long after he left office, but he was the most, one of the most singularly effective presidents. When you take a look at accomplishments per unit time, uh, like any corporate raider understood that space meant opportunity. He understood that you know, the economies of the United States were growing, they were growing fast, people needed space to live. And, you know, at a very tactical level, the United States at that point was still struggling with what we called at the time free states and slave states. Those states largely in the north where uh, slavery was not allowed, and uh, states in the south where chattel slavery was allowed. He being a southerner, Uh, understood that kind of the growth of the United States meant uh, kind of kicking that can down the road. If you could set up new states, if you could give people room, you could avoid the inevitable conflict that would come. And frankly, that uh, he was only able to delay it a little while. But the bottom line is new states were able to get set up and it continued that balance of power. Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. should we have addressed that earlier as a nation. Uh, but Polk, seeing the opportunity in front of him at the time, looked at that and you know took the opportunity to kind of make the market bigger. And if you make the market bigger, you can fill it with more opportunity. And if there's enough room for everybody, maybe everyone will just get along.
1: So just curious, as we are sort of passing rapidly along these presidents, do you think that Polk, so this was 1845. Did he have a keen sense that he was a marketeer? Uh, I mean, the, the field of marketing, you know, obviously looking quite different. Uh, this was before kind of consumer uh, studies really took hold here. But, uh, but in what sense do you think he, he sort of conceptualized this one vision that was w- what he was going to present? Or are you not implying that even though your lens is kind of the m president, did he necessarily see himself that way uh, you know in among his contemporaries
2: yeah that's a that's interesting uh it, It's an interesting question uh trying to get inside his head. He was uh, he there was kind of a religious angle to how he thought about his world that was different than uh, than what, how we might think about it today. Just mindsets were different then. And I think that's maybe the most important thing to think about is that he thought people saw their world differently. And so I'm not implying that he kind of conceived of or thought uh, of himself exactly in those terms, but he did see himself like many other people at the time that he was on a mission to create manifest destiny for the United States, that the United States was clearly superior and that in a competition for resources and a competition for society, that the better societies should supplant the less uh, advanced societies, and that we should be on a mission to civilize, or if not civilize, eliminate uh, the people who were there. Again, when we think about in 2021, how abhorrent that kind of thought process is, we need to remember that's not how Polk saw himself, and frankly, That's not how almost anyone saw themselves at that time. It was common knowledge and commonly accepted thought that the civilized would supplant the uncivilized. And that's really that push to create a larger United States, kind of a bigger manifest destiny, sea to shining sea, was the idea.
1: Uh, Look, my last thing on on, uh, this president is simply, if you think about it, it is a crazy thing that what we now know as America essentially was created during those four years. And to think that it has stayed stable, you know, <laughs> for the for a large part until now, but nation states and federalist states, they, you know, if you look at it throughout history with the lens of history, not with the lens of, you know, I grew up in X decade and this is how status quo is. These borders historically over... Hundreds of years, but sometimes even over decades, they do keep changing. So there is nothing magical about whatever geographical borders and 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 sort of legislative boundaries we find ourselves in at any given moment. Is there?
2: There's. If you look at the borders of the United States, uh, there's a wonderful book called "How the States Got Their Shapes." Uh, I think uh, Stein wrote it. His first name escapes me. Which is a fascinating, if you ever want to get into that rabbit hole, it's a lot of fun. What I'll tell you is all of them made sense at the time, but none of them make any general sense at all. Uh, The United States, its northern border makes no sense. It's just at a imaginary parallel. You know, it's, you know, it's a line on a map. Uh, The Mexican-American border is the Rio Grande for part of it. And a lot of it that's not. And it's just a complete, you know, it's, it's determined partly by geography, partly by custom. Uh, there aren't really good answers. The uh, Canadian-Alaskan border makes no sense. Uh, the only border that makes sense for a state for the United States is Hawaii. It's the only one that makes any sense at all.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Let's make a let's make a drastic leap. We're we're jumping, I guess, eighty five years here, but we're we're jumping to Herbert Hoover, um, and he was the thirty first, of course, president. Uh, so now we're talking nineteen twenty nine to nineteen thirty three. Um, there were quite a few surprises. I mean, there's surprises for everyone who looks into Hoover because uh, there's so much. So many interesting things about him. I, I want you to maybe uh, lay out some of it, but I mean, what what we all know is uh, the concept of Hoovervilles, which essentially turned into some unknown number, perhaps five thousand at the mid uh, you know nineteen thirty s of of these Hoovervilles, which were shanty towns created by homeless people in the United States. But there's another side of him that you're bringing up. And what fascinates me, I guess, as someone who really cares about technology and innovation, which uh, you, I know you do as well, is that he was the first and only engineer president of the United States. Well, Tell me more. Not
2: exactly true. Uh, there are two engineer presidents. The second was Jimmy Carter. Uh, I well, up, it, up,
1: up until that up time. Up until that yeah. point. Yes, right.
2: absolutely. And what was interesting, we, tend, we have a recency bias with Hoover. And the reason we do is we remember, people tend to remember the first and the last things people do. And Hoovervilles and the Great Depression was such a major event that it created the arc of the narrative for Hoover that we've been living with ever since. However, if you step back from that and you say, how could I put myself in the mind of someone in 1928? What would that person have thought about Herbert Hoover That person would have been not only in line for the presidency, probably should have been president, in their opinion, rather than Calvin Coolidge, and probably one of the most innovative, smart, humanitarian, kind of the archetypally progressive, amazing American leaders uh, in history. A lot of reasons for that, but... It's interesting that had Hoover been elected in 1920 versus 1928, he probably would have been remembered as one of the greatest presidents we ever had. And I, I think what's important to understand is the context of the time of the 1920s. People think about the roaring 20s as this time of capitalistic excess. And it, it, it certainly was that to an extent. What people forget is the laundry list of new products and innovations that came to life at that time. It was probably the most innovative 10 years in history to that time. And you can make an argument that the innovations that have happened since kind of pale in comparison to the automobile, the airplane, the refrigerator, the electric razor, you name it. If you think about an innovation, that you live with today, Uh, you know, AM, FM, radio, television, quantum theory was invented in the 20s. If we think about all of that, who would you want as your leader during that time to help guide that technology into the marketplace? You'd want an engineer. You'd want someone who could do that.
1: Yeah, and that's so fascinating with the story you tell, because... Uh, the way I read your pitch for your marketing pitch for Hoover was that essentially he is a standardizer, which I actually happen to really enjoy. Uh, I've worked in standardization. I think it's a fundamental domain, very misunderstood. Uh, it is, however, a domain that is largely understood by engineers, although he took it to an extreme. So you you, you talk about it in the consumer innovation space, but but he was generally a standardizer for many many things he brought living standards right like as we were saying here even before he was president for his work in in europe uh but uh overall it wasn't just that he was overseeing all these innovations but he was able to kind of package them into what they should mean for the united states and and ostensibly i guess for the world
2: i think what i uh, in when I began to research Herbert Hoover, the story I had in my mind was Hoovervilles. That that was the story I had in my mind, like most people do. But the more I dug in, the more I realized I was completely wrong. And to your point, uh, and let's just take one example, the home mortgage. In the United States before Herbert Hoover uh, in the 1920s, if you wanted to buy a home, you essentially needed to write a check for a hundred percent of that home uh, with you know you know with a little bit of flexibility here but most people rented or most people couldn't own a home The idea of the quote unquote American dream was really part of what Hoover did so that transition and I like how you put it in the how do we package something in a way so that the innovation means something and the innovation was the home mortgage. Uh, the 30-year home mortgage that you could pay over time for a home, well, what did it mean? What what would that mean? It wasn't just that there was a financial innovation. Herbert Hoover had to help people understand what would that mean for the community? What would that mean for construction? What would that mean for neighborhood design? All of those sorts of things to help people understand why they should go get a home mortgage. What would that mean for them? And frankly, we have been living with that particular innovation. We forget where it came from because it's just it's it's kind of like walking out if we were a fish, you wouldn't understand what water is. You, you're just you're in it all the time. Well we have lived in a United States of home ownership and this kind of default mentality that to succeed is to own a home that that wasn't the case prior to Herbert Hoover. It was Herbert Hoover who helped standardize, regulate so that that could be adopted en masse, that innovation of the home mortgage. And there's example after example of that sort of creativity of not just the innovation, but what does the innovation mean and how do I package it together with public-private partnerships that help make sure that the average person can go get it? It's a fascinating story.
1: Yeah, it is. And I mean, it, you could actually argue that Hoover set in motion the entire structure of the American uh, kind of corporations and the the mega growth of, of, of all of these giants that, you know, now come to define Wall Street and our stock uh, indices and everything uh, like that. With with the consequence, of course, of, of creating a particular type of, of capitalism in, in post-war America even uh let's make another very significant jump so this is recent history it's so recent actually that you know for you and i many of it's almost hard to think of it as history uh but barack obama right so now we're talking the 44th president of the u.s 2009 to 2017 that's a very recent uh history what is it that you picked out there i i i I guess it's about technology, but not in sort of the usual sense.
2: Yeah, I think most people, when they think about Barack Obama, they think, you know, the first person of color to become president of the United States. And what did that mean for kind of the image and the brand of the United States? Uh, There's certainly a story to tell there. But I wanted to tell a story that wasn't being told uh, in the same way. And the story I chose to tell is the story of drones, and kind of the reinvention and the re of military conflict globally because i wanted to show that disruption uh that was occurring really and often as we both know disruption happens under our noses and if we're not looking carefully it happens and we're not conscious of it and i wanted to kind of pull back the curtain on that it's not necessarily fair that i completely picked this for barack obama it was george w bush who initially began the unmanned kind of the drone strike program, where essentially for those uh, most everyone knows about this because it is pretty recent history, but essentially the United States, instead of sending seal teams in uh, to capture a Osama bin Laden or some, some such thing like that has been sending the predator drones and Reaper drones armed with laser guided munitions uh, to go take out, uh, kill uh, targets of interest all over the world. It's not literally all over the world. There are certain hot spots where that tends to happen more often than others. But what's critical to understand about that is that it changes the fundamental rules of the game. And that's what true disruption does, right? It, it changes the marketplace. What military planners have had to worry about since Hannibal... Has been an army needs to be bread fed and led. Okay, you need to have enough people. Uh, you need to supply them res- with resources, and you need to provide them leadership. And if you don't do one of those three things, you're not able to sustain an armed conflict. Uh, what that means is you kind of have symmetry of uh, you know a force there. What you're trying to do is what Sun Tzu would would do. You're trying to kind of outwit the enemy, but To go up and take your sword or your gun, you've got to get pretty close to that enemy to do that. Uh, You know, you are putting yourself in danger by using robots, by using drones, autonomous vehicles. You're essentially creating an asymmetrical situation where you are not in danger, but your enemy is in mortal danger. And the point is... boy, from a United States perspective, we can argue about the moral implications of that. And we can, you know, we we can, you know, kind of debate the number of angels on the head of a pin. I'll be like on that until someone decides to do it to us. And that's absolutely coming. The rules have changed. In order to have a military conflict, you don't need soldiers anymore, or you don't need them in the same way. Or I could buy a drone at Best Buy, hack its operating system, put a some sort of lethal device on it and fly it into your corporate headquarters that's a big deal
1: yeah and it has a number of of not just legal but moral and uh, and, and real world consequences for the ways that nations operate but also the ways that terrorist networks and also individual lone uh kind of justice warriors uh, operate right and and i guess that the difference here is that uh obama ordered 375 drone strikes which was a, a drastic escalation from from before and it it really actually perhaps in history will come to and that i guess that's what you're arguing will come to define him more than anything else he did because it is truly a, a shift and if you look at you know other technologies that have similar asymmetric capabilities you know you can think of any sort of cybersecurity attack in a similar vein once you have normalized as uh, asymmetric warfare or as morally legitimate you're opening up a can of worms some people would say um, yeah interesting so so Obama for you was the drone uh, AI drone unmanned, uh, uh warfare, uh, asymmetrically president.
2: Yeah. I thought that, uh, what was, what was interesting about that? The technology certainly is interesting to me, but what was more, I think, instructive was understanding the psychology. Well, why would someone like that do that? You know, why would a, why would a person do it and,
1: and someone who won the Nobel Peace Prize, yes,
2: <laughs> yes. You know why would why would he do that? And the reality is that arming and deploying a military everywhere it needs to be deployed in the world is prohibitively expensive. It's uh, it is bankrupting the United States the same way it bankrupted Imperial Rome. The same way at bankrupted Imperial China, it is very difficult to project power, you know, in a sustained way over that amount of time. Uh, it can happen for a while as long as you're growing, but once you stop growing, the percentage of resources it takes up, uh, you know, not only from kind of a pure financial perspective, but people not wanting to do that. You know, the alternative to a drone strike is give your son or daughter a rifle and a map and say, go shoot that guy. Uh, It's a very difficult sort of, uh, you know, sort of way to uh, uh, sort of way to think about that. And I have a lot of sympathy for him in terms of how do we, how do you make that kind of decision in disruption in, in a disruptive market, you take advantage of an asymmetric technology. For all the right reasons at the right time, with a series of unintended consequences as we go forward. Is it inevitable? Is it not? Uh, that's a tough question to answer. I don't have the answer to that question, but I think we should be asking the question.
1: Yeah. And I guess the only thing, you know, with our time limit that we can reflect on is these were three presidents sort of with especially disruptive impact, arguably. And, And also with a certain sort of tech and standardization, you know, relevance. I was interested in if we imagine some future presidents. So there's an election in 2024, 2028, and we can keep going. What might their marketing pitches be? So we're, you know, we're in the midst of COVID. Could it be, you know, I ended COVID? Could it be global leadership? Could it be... Uh, the opposite. I, I'm proudly, you know, turning, focusing the U.S. inward. We're gonna be the best we can, and you know, leave the rest of the world because we have our own wonderful society to create. Is there a rosy pitch to decline? Are there events X, Y, and Z that will come to define it? Do you see something completely different? G- give me a uh, marketer product uh, marketing pitch on future presidencies. I
2: think when I think about the future, and I wrote about this in the epilogue, you know, what challenge does Joe Biden face? Uh, And it is we have been living through an era of disruption through the past 10 to 15 years, but we haven't been conscious of it. We haven't thought about it in that way. We haven't thought about it in a way that said the idea of the United States needs disruptive innovation. Well, what does that mean? Uh, It doesn't just mean kind of a reboot of the social contract, a new, new deal. Uh, It's really a rethink when there is, when governments no longer control currency, for instance, and we use software and crypto technology to define kind of economic transactions. When the concept of, you know, uh, of environmental change. Uh, whether Whether you want to argue whatever it's caused by, environment is changing. So we can debate the causes all we like, but the reality is that we need to be thinking about a different way to interact with our environment. This is the kind of time where my pitch for what a president would come out and say is help the United States and really along with the rest of the world, understand that there needs to be a rethink, not just an incremental change in what we're doing, not just like, well, we need better roads and better bridges. We need a disruptive kind of a new way to look at the world. Uh, I like the focus on infrastructure, but when we think about infrastructure as roads and bridges, we're thinking about it too narrowly. Uh, you know, Are we thinking about social infrastructure? environmental infrastructure, emotional infrastructure. Uh, One of your podcasts talked about the thinking about thinking and the nature of thought and the nature of how our brains work. This is the kind of thing that the next president will need to help us work through. If they do, we have an opportunity to reinvent what it means to be the United States. If we don't, if we try to make America great again, uh, we're not going to be successful. Uh, the arrow of time goes only in one direction and we must move forward. It's just a matter of how do we move forward. Organizations as we both know that attempt to live in the past die slow deaths. And I don't want to see that, frankly. it's part of the reason I wrote this book is to show that yeah, we can we can use this kind of thought process to rethink what it means at a fundamental level what is the idea of the united states what does that mean and what does that mean for the rest of the world and let's do something better and different uh in the future
1: you know uh we're probably not going to resolve this big and important question of what future u.s presidents are are going to be remembered for Uh, but what what struck me in this discussion and reading your book and thinking about this is that even as As a president as presidents you would you would only get a few shots maybe you only get one shot you are handed certain cards and then things start to happen usually more than one thing starts to happen if you live in a very disruptive period Uh, There are some good things that happens that, you know, are within the control of your resources. And then there are some natural catastrophes and certainly some international affairs that start to happen that you cannot fully control, but you can influence and shape and you can at least perhaps put a spin on it. But largely, it's about picking the shot that you've got at the right moment and then running with it and then hoping that you can sort of sail and create a w- wave essentially, you know, and, and that becomes your legacy. There aren't that many, uh, especially if we think, as probably you and I both do, that the world is moving. It's certainly not slower than it did before. So four years of a presidency is not a very long time uh, in the sense that a, a lot of things will happen, but you know, your capacity to sort of like jump on something and define it and maybe even slow it down so people will see and and capture what is about to happen. Because I think that's the other thing that I wanted to ask you about. You know, you've looked at all of these presidents through the lens of sort of product marketing and product pitching. It must not have been super easy, even for advisors who were advising these presidents to say, hey, Here's what we're going to focus on in the State of the Union. This is your legacy. That That's like, in history, posterity can put any number of labels. And even posterity doesn't agree. Like, if you're in it, how do you pick?
2: It's, you know, it's difficult that uh, Hoover's a great example of this, really. That he had, there's example after example of the kind of deliberate change that he helped, he's that prototypical example of the right kind of leader to help guide that sort of change and help show what do these disruptive innovations mean? I kind of wish we had Herbert Hoover today who would think, instead of trying to ignore cryptocurrencies, would say, okay, I'm going to bring together all of the people who need to be in on this and we are going to decide how we think about cryptocurrencies going forward. How we regulate them, how the government inter- interacts, how people use them. Let's go, let's have a major summit and we're going to work through how to do this. That's the sort of thing we need. That's the sort of leadership we need. But think of how thankless that really was. Once it becomes once you see the results of that, you kind of forget the person who helped lead you through that, especially when you have the unluck to have the Great Depression happen and the stock market crashed during your presidency, that's what you remembered for. So history is a funny thing. How we remember is a funny thing. It's actually something I wanted to ask you about in all of these conversations. And I've listened to so many of them and they're really fascinating. It's just this kind of wonderful way to, uh, experience so many different points of view on innovation in the future, uh, that, uh, I am, I I wonder, I've chosen to tell stories. I have chosen to craft narratives. Sometimes they're different narratives. Sometimes they're the same narrative. But I wonder, in your experience as well, are we, do we sometimes struggle with narrative bias? And what I mean is the story we create about something that has happened or is happening can either be empowering or it can be limiting. In you know our opinion of Herbert Hoover and his legacy is a limiting narrative, uh, and yeah, someone like me isn't going to shift that on people. But historians over time have tended to do that. We can we can do that over time. I wonder. I, I worry about the power of the story and the narrative uh, to either be constructive or not constructive in kind of thinking about the way we think and the way we approach the world. What, what would you say to that? Just with your experience talking with so many of us, uh, what about the story is useful or not useful?
1: Um, well to that, I, I think I will submit that the, the idea of having a framework uh, or a narrative to frame everything around you know, is relatively timeless. And those uh, storytellers that started to give that up, right, they became called you know, postmodern, and it was sort of the end of narrative. And, and you know, I don't know how that really went, because you know, storytelling is, is kind of back with a, with a vengeance, I would say. So I don't think you can get around putting up scaffolding around your thinking. Nobody who I have interviewed on this podcast falls into that trap of thinking that they are outside of history and can kind of objectively look at things as if they have some sort of vantage point that's like from outer space i mean this is sort of a discredited view of even of science right you you, you just right. don't that that doesn't exist that perspective doesn't exist uh, i mean some scientists would perhaps uh, still ag- disagree about that but you know the objective truth If it is out there, it's actually not accessible to human beings, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, So that's at least my my view of things. So what that means, if you take that to heart, is that there are always frameworks and there are always ways of telling a story. And they are, like you said initially, they're more or less useful. Uh, Whether they are, you know, baked in a scientific language, you know, which obviously is a very typically a very solid language it, it it you know has rigor to it and it's based on on experiments perhaps or ob- large and large number of observations it, it's all up for grabs and it keeps changing as we learn new things or maybe even the framework uh, or, or the way with within which we have made these observations you know the things change factors change new things come in so you know in the history of great men was perhaps not the best way to view history so I, I wouldn't argue you fall into that. It's I think it's okay to look at the u s. and you know, in light of what the presidents you uh, uh, did and have done, and you have done it in a very different way. But you know, arguably, uh, you know my lens perhaps is too slanted in terms of the history of technology. I, I care a lot about yeah. that. um although my perspective is sort of, um, I care about the technology, but I am fully aware that the things around the technology is probably what shaped it. But even just to say that i, always bring in the factor of technology among other perhaps three, four others. And, you know, my disruption framework there, you know, there's social and business and there's regulatory Uh, and then there's technology and then there's environment as sort of like a surrounding factor that actually influences everything. So that's my very, very simplistic framework. At least it's not just technology, but you know, even that framework, has its pitfall, because once you start diving into four or five, uh, you know, factors and forces of disruption, you are, of course, not seeing other things, or you are grouping things differently. Um, So, look, I don't think narrative bias can be avoided. I actually don't think of it as a bad thing. I just think you need to be pretty transparent about your own bias to the extent you can, and then others will have to judge. Um, And the strange thing is, we think of ourselves as very rational, but we don't always judge things rationally. So if we like the story, we are perhaps more like, I like your story. I like the stories you're telling. So I'm fascinated by the marketer in chief concept. It makes history fun for me. I t- uh, so so I applaud you for it.
2: No, I I appreciate that. I think, you know, if I and I appreciate that perspective, there's. Any time, any framework you look at the world in, whether that's a, yeah, you attempt, it's a scientific framework. I'm going to use data or I'm going to use, you know, our human brains are just too limited to understand the totality of the world at all times and from all perspectives. We need to simplify things. And stories are the way that humans, uh, humans can do that. What gives me hope is that as storytellers, we could choose to tell a different story. We could write a different one. One of the best examples from history, uh, there are a couple, some of the early, uh, most people think about Benjamin Franklin, for instance, who wasn't a president, but was kind of the prototypical marketer in chief uh, for the United States. People loved him at that time. He was very popular in France, by the way, still is. uh, Popular in the United States up until about Polk's era. And a lot of what he did kind of fell out of favor uh, at that time. And he was kind of largely this kind of forgotten figure, kind of this old dotty man who, yeah, he had a role to play, but really wasn't that important in the grand scheme of things. Well, over time, you know, starting in the early 1900s, historians started to re-examine his life and started to tell different stories. And by telling different stories, began to help show people what what his impact really was. The same happened with John Adams, the second president of the United States, uh, largely due to the efforts of David McCullough uh, and Tom Hanks, uh, uh, quite bluntly, with the HBO miniseries in 2008 by the same name, John Adams, really helped people see what that era of history was really like and told a new story About John Adams. It's not all the stories. There's no way to tell all the stories, but it tells a different one that serves a different purpose for today. And that's what I think the marketer in chief in the future, the best ones were the best storytellers.
1: Well, I think whether whether they are storytellers or they are uh, standardizers or they're they're both or they're scientists or engineers, you know, whatever background they have, revisiting history from whatever lens they think makes sense, and then putting a cohesive, uh, I guess, brand on that, uh, right. and 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 structuring it is is not necessarily. A bad thing, Jason. I thank you so much for this discussion. It's uh, certainly invigorated my search for uh, reading material on, on you know, U.S. history and and other things. And I think you know you could perhaps expand this scope to marketers in chiefs that aren't uh, necessarily you know presidents either. And there's many many other ways of of telling these stories. And I uh, commend you for having started this discussion on an expanded notion of of marketing.
0: Thank you.
2: No, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Fascinating discussion, as always.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You have just listened to episode 146 of the Futurized podcast with host Trond Unheim, futurist and author. If you are interested in Trond's products and services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Tron's books, such as Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games or Leadership from below. In this episode, the topic was how presidents pitch the American idea, and in this conversation we talked about the role of marketing in presidential politics. My takeaway is that despite the common thinking that presidents have a lot of power, presidents only get one shot at presenting their key message. After that, they are always compared to that standard. Also, their presidency tends to be shaped by outside events as much as by their own ideas. This complicates marketing. James Polk, Herbert Hoover, and Barack Obama were three presidents presiding over especially disruptive periods in history, and each had a tech relevance. What if I have to imagine what future presidents in 2024, 2028, their marketing pitch would be? I can imagine something about ending COVID-19, global leadership to defend democracy, but more likely one of them will be about Event X, some previously unknown that they will have to focus on. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 102 on the geotech decade, episode 76 on the future of risk and resilience or episode 103 on the future of freedom. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. And if you do so, Please let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network. Yegi lets clients create multidisciplinary dream teams consisting of subject matter experts, academics, consultants, data scientists, and generalists. Yegi's services include speeches, briefings, seminars, reports, and ongoing monitoring. You can find Yegi at yegi.org. Find futurized on social media is easy. We are futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and futurized too on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.